Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Our guest this episode is fashion designer and graphic artist Jessica Morcel Hay. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Seven days in the Mesozoic. I am here at the Hell Creek Geological Formation in North Dakota, where we have been stunned to make a discovery of immense importance. Here, where we have extraordinary evidence of the end of the dinosaur era, the end of the Cretaceous period, when an asteroid of immense size hit the Yucatan Peninsula at 45,000 miles per hour. Within two minutes of slamming into our planet, this six-mile-wide asteroid had dug a crater about 18 miles deep and lofted 25 trillion metric tons of debris into our atmosphere. As the Earth's crust rebounded, a mountain of Earth higher than Everest briefly rose up. It is reckoned that the energy released was more than that of a billion Hiroshima A-bombs, but there was no mushroom cloud. Rather, a giant plume of molten material rose up, setting fire to most of the Western Hemisphere. Dust and soot from the impact prevented sunlight from reaching the Earth for months. Photosynthesis all but stopped, killing most of the plant life. More than 99% of all life died immediately, and about 75% of all species went extinct. The Earth became toxic for centuries. A layer of debris now called the KT layer, the border between the Cretaceous and Tertiary periods, is spread around the world. But here in Hell Creek, we have evidence of something like a giant tsunami of fossils, which makes it look like a wave pushed a plethora of animals up against this ridge. Hell Creek is a final resting place for the dinosaur era. And not just for animal remains. Perhaps even more importantly is the find of a dinosaur documentary, a digital record of what went on during the last week of life in the Cretaceous period, a scratchy representation of the last week of the Dinosaur Imperium. Join us now as we explore this extraordinary find, an audio recording of Dinosaurian Voices, a record of the civilization that went before us so long ago. A record we are calling Seven Days in the Mesozoic. Sunday noon. President Woodrow Brontosaurus speaks to an assembled throng in the fern garden of the greenhouse. And so, the Great Alliance, the Grand Vegetarian Coalition, continues to give us strength. We combine the Hadrosaurian party of duckbills and iguanodons 
with the Ceratopsian caucus of Stegosauri and Triceratops, with the great sauropods, the giant herbivores which have given us so many of our great Jurassic residents. And so we keep peace with the Mediator Party, with the Tyrannosauri and the Allosauri, based on the credo that we shall take not more than what we need and acknowledge the mutual respect of the dinosaurian social contract. They take the defense and security ministries, and we vegetarians take care of social welfare. So let us not fear invasion by tiny mammals. Let us not worry about illegal immigration of furry creatures. For I say to you, we have ruled for 150 million years, and we are not going to stop now. All hail the Cretaceous. All hail Dinosauriums. Monday, 9 a.m., Dino Radio Show, starring Al Osaurus. It's the Allosaurus Show ah! on Dino, Dino Radio. This is Al Osaurus, the carnivore's carnivore, with a little insight on how things work inside the plant eater's beltway we call the capital. Let's talk about tiny, hairy riffraff. Who knows, I say, who knows where these worthless little beasts come from? But I'll tell you one thing, if they keep coming, let's eat every single last one of them. <laughs> You know these mammals can't be trusted. They come from shithole continents. And here's the weird part. They suck milk from their mother's chest things. Let's talk about more vegetarian porkosaurus from Senator Cory Thesaurus and his beloved Fern Subsidy Act. They want us hardworking, tax-paying carnivores to foot the bill for more ferns. I am sorry, cud chewers. No more subsidies. You're right, Al. That's typical herbivore thinking. The same thinking that coddles those mammal immigrants. Aha. Now you're talking like a meat-eater, Senator Raptor. What can we expect from a bunch of chlorophyll-chopping imbeciles who've never had to chase a meal in their lives? You should be more than Minister of Cretaceous Security, Dilophosaur. You should be running the country. Ah, no, the big lizard who should be running things is General Tyrone Rex. He wouldn't listen to those mammal coddlers like Senator Gwendolyn Tricera. Pardon me for gagging. If you ask me, she's a fella traveler of those little milk suckers. I can promise you, I'm gonna filibuster that fern bill into the ground. Unless there's a solution for mammal immigration. Point of order. I don't think we can rule out military intervention.
Monday, 1.30 p.m., Phyllis H. Pterodactyl Daycare Nest. gentlemen, to cut the ribbon for the opening of the Phyllis H. Pterodactyl Daycare Nest, I present to you Senator Gwendolyn Tricera. Doesn't anyone have a heart anymore? You go, Senator Tricera. You go, Senator Tricera. You go, Senator Tricera. I am proud to be cutting a ribbon on the Phyllis H. Pterodactyl Daycare Nest, a facility for all creatures, whether of the scale, the feather, or of the fur. Holy Stegosaurus, you've killed him! He was in the way. He wouldn't move. Besides, he doesn't belong here. Things are getting out of hand. I must see the president. Tuesday, 8.15 a.m. Cabinet Room, The Greenhouse. Surely we can agree at... I say close the borders. Or consider a preemptive strike on Gondolwana. Something must be done immediately if we are not to lose face. No, things must be dealt with. But frankly, I don't share your view that mammals are a threat to national security. Why, I've yet to hear a plant-eating officer speak out in support of such a policy. Am I right, Admiral Triassic? You'll have my full cooperation, sir. <clears throat> well, let's not worry too much about those mini furballs in our midst. Let's call it a day for now. Meeting is adjourned. Mr. President, may I have a word with you? Why, of course, I... Uh, Mr. President, I've taken the liberty of making contingency preparations for military maneuvers. That way, we will have all the bases covered. Yes, uh, cover all those bases. I thank the stars that we've got this covenant between us vegetarians and you meat eaters. Uh, General Rex? General Rex? Well, I, I, I hope he heard me. Wednesday, 12.01 p.m. Star Lab, Cretaceous Planetarium. Why, I haven't seen a thing out there all day. 
Kind of wish that brain in my tail would lend a hand. Right, Furball? Well, yes, Professor Lasori. Although I really don't think you need it, though. Why, you're the finest astronomer in all of Dinosauria. And you're the biggest mammal kiss-ass assistant an astronomer could ever have. Ha ha ha! I wish all dinosaurs were like you, Professor Lasori. It's like you care about meat-eaters expelling methane and punching holes in the ozone and making us more vulnerable to meteors. I hated it when Allosaurus called you a moaning midi and a bone-headed subspecies. I mean, how many PhDs does Allosaurus have anyway? Wait a minute, what's that? Is that comet getting bigger? Let's punch in some numbers, Furball. Something's rotten in Pangea. Wednesday, 7.45 a.m. The getaway bedroom of Minister of Cretaceous Security, Dil Afasor. Minister of Cretaceous Security? Oh, yes, sir. A full investigation of all the files? Find all the flaws, find all the dirt. Got it. Yes, yes, we'll handle that pushy triceratops. And code name Bronto. You mean the president? Uh, uh, right, sir. Discretion is the better part of valor. I'm not the Minister of Security for nothing. I'll get right on it, sir. Who was that, Dilly? Kind of broke the mood. <laughs> None of your business, honey. Don't get your tiny little arms all up in a twist. Now, up and at them. Oh, Dilly, I love your little slaps. Did I make you happy? Am I your little lizard? Uh, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll see you later. Get me the Technosaur Squad. Prepare my secret access codes. Thursday, 10.30 a.m., The Carnivore Club. Patience is one thing, and inertia is another. At the present time of crisis, inaction is inexcusable. Inaction is folly. And inaction is just plain wrong. We in the military have stayed vigilant in spite of the lack of civilian purpose and resolve. We stand ready to take measures to defend this society of ours against the mammal menace. Give us the orders, and there will be no mammals. Long live the Mesozoic!
This is Colonel Coelophysis on orders from General Tyrone Rex. The move to DEFCON 3 is a go. Thursday, 11.52 p.m. The John Quincy Apatosaurus Presidential Bedroom. You know, Woodrow, my father was a senator and his father before him. And I feel as if this time is different. We are facing the challenge of our careers, the challenge of our lives. Mildred, I couldn't agree more. I I just don't like the mood of the military. Well, the tension about this has gone right into my shoulders. Uh, could you give me a little rubby boo, my vegan vixen? Oh, oh yes. Oh. Uh, I just don't lower. trust Tyrell oh. Rex. Oh. That speech oh. today bordered on a call for a putsch. We can't just sit here and wait for the claw to rip. Huh? Well, I'm not sure I can act without real evidence. Oh, Woodrow, perhaps I'm speaking from more than experience. I'm speaking from sort of a gut feeling. Today's carnivore just doesn't believe in the Constitution, and they see mammals as nothing more than... Mildred? Food! This is a constitutional government. It's more dangerous this time, Woodrow. It's about power. That Rex has a cold-blooded stare. I'll call him in for a meeting on Monday morning, first thing. Can you tighten my jammies? Why not call him in tomorrow? He says they've all got weekend maneuvers. Friday, 9.15 a.m. Dino Radio Show, starring Allosaurus. This is Allosaurus, the carnivore's carnivore, with a little insight on how things work inside the plant eater's beltway we call the capital. So... Senator Gwendolyn Tricera finds nothing threatening in the mammal way of life. No potential competitor? No insidious fifth column? Mammals are no more a fifth column than you are a vegetarian. They're creatures like you and I, intelligent, ambitious, wanting the kids to have a better way of life than what they've had. I think they deserve our support. That's the trouble with you spineless liberal plant eaters. You want to throw money at anything that will benefit your friends. You've got all kinds of quotas and taxes on carnivores, but you want special favors. Take the Fern Subsidy Act. Nope. Why do you need more ferns? Because there's more vegetarians than ever before. Let's get to the point here, Mr. Osaurus. This is not about ferns. This is about power. You people will do anything you can to paralyze the And now, a word from DinoGel, the cure for meat-eater gas. Friday, 11.15 p.m., the office of Minority Leader Senator Vel Raptor.
Here's to a new understanding, Senator Thosaurus. <laughs> My, you mix a mean Jurassic wall banger, Senator Raptor. Now you're talking like a carnivore, Senator. And all this means more military jobs in my district? And we agree. Woodrow Brontosaurus has to go. He is the epitome of old and in the way. Of course, there won't be any violence. Oh, of course not. I give my word as a colleague and a, a follower of the Constitution. Hip, hip, hooray! How about a hug? Why, yes, a hug. Hip, hip, hooray! <laughs> Saturday, 11.15 p.m. The Luther Ichthyosaur Naval Air Station, outskirts of nation's capital. Wow, man, that's a hell of a big fighter plane. One, two, three, four, we fight like dinosaurs. Five, six, seven, eight, yum, 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 we just ate. One, two, three, four, we fight like dinosaurs. Five, six, seven, eight, yum, 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 we just ate. One, two, three, four, we fight like dinosaurs. Five, six, seven, eight. I'll bet you they're gonna fight somebody. President Woodrow Brontosaurus's Oval Office. What do you mean the lines are down? We've got to be able to call out. I'm head of the government, damn it! Ah, Mr. President, I wish I could help, but as you know, we're all incommunicado since earlier today. I'm sorry, Minister Aphosaurus. I don't mean to take it out on you, but this is a most inconvenient emergency. Professor Lasore at the Star Lab had just called with a crisis alert, and then, poof, all the lines went down. This is a citywide power outage. Stay in your homes. I repeat, stay in your homes. This is a citywide power outage. Stay in your homes. I repeat, stay in your homes. This is a citywide uh, power Mr. Outage. President, I'm without stay power as well. Homes. Seems I the whole grid went down. Damn. To be president and to be so powerless. Well, we are in good hands. Yes, I understand. All right, then. I'd like the security ministry to be prepared for any contingency. Ready yourself to establish a civil defense... Yellow alert as soon as we get power back. Thank you, Minister Afasor. Yes, sir, Mr. President. 
Uh, Mr. President, when will the power come back on? I don't... General Rex says this is the fault I'm... of the Grand Vegetarian Party. Well, uh, How much meat I'd does like a meat eater need to eat? I couldn't... <sighs> he just doesn't get it. Sunday, 1.53 a.m. Star Lab, Cretaceous Planetarium. I am moving from a scan of that far galaxy back to our home quadrant. Copy that. Moving back to home quadrant. Damn. That comet is getting enormous. Holy dimetrodon. They're going to have to name this comet after me. <laughs> it's growing, furball. It's growing every time I take a look at it. Take a look. It's the biggest light I've ever seen in the firmaments. It's just above the moon now. Furball, hit the warning system. No, don't worry about the charts. We'll record it later. I promised the president I'd call back if my fears proved correct. What are the odds of this being a mistake? Maybe the outer atmosphere will bounce it back? Not now, Furball. What's taking so long for pickup? I'm calling the commander in chief, damn it! General Bulldog Dimetrodon Memorial Golf Course, 19th hole just outside the nation's capital. Operation Feeding Frenzy has been launched. Prepare my dress uniform. Operation Feeding Frenzy has been launched without a hitch. Opposition has been nullified. By this evening, sir, you will be the acting president of the Dinosaur Nation. I will address and congratulate the troops... And then I will talk to the nation. First things first. General, General, red phone alert, sir. Hello, this is General Tyrone Rex. General Rex, this is Air Defense HQ. We've got an incoming projectile of enormous size. What do we do?
So there you have it, an extraordinary message from 65 million years ago. A digital communique we would never have expected. Voices from the fifth great extinction, where most life on Earth was extinguished. And of course, the world of dinosaurs had no choice. And here we are today, in a world we have created, an environment of our own choosing. What choice will we make? Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. And now our interview with designer and graphic artist Jessica Morcel Hay. Hi, I'm here today with Jessica Morcel Hay. Jessica, I've known since she was not a wee tyke. She was more like a big sprout in eighth grade when I met Jessica first. And Jessica, you're a working artist and you're a woman who's raising a family. And you're also a Fort Bragg, California City Councilwoman. I mean, I can't imagine somebody with a busier life. Yeah, I'm running 100 miles a minute. There's never a dull moment. Well, there's about 40 hours a day, I Mm -hmm. I think. Right, right. Um, right. I'm basically a councilwoman full-time, a freelance artist full-time, a mom full-time. Oh, and I do also manage four businesses. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's right. We'll talk about that. Yes, amazing. Because there's the business aspects to running a bar, right? Yeah. And that's the Golden West in Fort Bragg. Mm -hmm. And then you also run your freelance business as a designer. Yep. And then what else? I also have a retail store, Fort Bragg General Store. That's right. And the building that both of these things are in is a separate business that has also um, 16 residential units upstairs. So I manage the tenants. Mm -hmm. I manage the 16 units upstairs. And then my husband and I also have a design business making product for our store. Amazing. You know, uh, that's a whole other question. I, I've been into the store and I've seen a lot of great art on the walls too. So I know you moved here when you were a tyke. In this case, the tyke is right. You came when you were four with your mom and your big brother. Yeah. And you moved up to Mendocino. And I think your mom is a writer and she wanted to move up here and do more writing on her own. So tell us about when you first moved up. You moved up from Los Angeles, right? We did, yeah. And, and tell us about your first thoughts about being a child in Mendo. Well, I was a pretty happy child. I don't really remember being upset about moving. Mm-hmm. Just lots of good memories of running around out in the fields and getting to be kind of wild and free and really just a really happy childhood. I was always trying to be outdoors. Were you kind of like a tomboy or anything like that? For sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. we just disappear into the woods. And then if it, you know, once it got dark, we'd better be in the, in the house. And if I didn't go get back by dark, that's mm-hmm. when my mom would freak out. But as long as as long as we showed back up around dusk, things were fine. So yeah, I'd be out in the woods climbing trees and exploring, hiking around, playing make-believe, creating kingdoms and 
forts and you know, right. And now you've got I'd... four kingdoms to manage. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> I met you when you were in eighth grade. You were going to Mendocino Middle School, and you joined the Improv Club. And it was a very lively bunch. That particular group was very super busy, and you had a lot of really good compatriots in that particular thing. And then you went on to the community high school of Mendocino. I know you're a you were a student. Obviously, you played four years of basketball as well in high school. The community school is kind of a special place. Tell us a little bit about the time you spent at the comm school. Well, I really loved the comm school. For me, it really gave a sense of um, both independence and accountability. You were really put to task to be kind of quote unquote real with your peers and your teachers and really approach people authentically. And I think many people see high school as a time to conform mm-hmm. and to placate the people around them. And it was really a space to be authentic. Um, and challenge oneself. So it it really worked for me, and and I had some great friends there. And I also had my friends at the high school and played basketball at the regular high school. And so I got the best of both worlds. Yeah, it seems to me like you were the kind of person who straddled those both world type thing. And the comm school always had a reputation. It was kind of the hipper school, the place where the alternative ed was kind of ruled. But at the same time, you're playing basketball and being on uh, the team. And, uh, I mean, it strikes me that that's a way to get to know lots of people. Yeah, it was great. And at the time, I was always a little irritated that my friends at the comm school thought I was a jock, and my friends at the high school thought that I was kind of a hippie artist weirdo. And mm-hmm. and later I kind of realized about myself, I really like being on the outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess that worked for me. Mm-hmm. So in, in a way, you were kind of like on the outside in both scenarios. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I felt that way to a degree. Well, that's great. And it's actually a good way to become an adaptable person. I, I can't help but ask, uh, since you like basketball, and I know that you continued on afterwards, after you played it in, San, in high school and then at Santa Cruz on the college team, didn't you play in some sort of organized league in L.A.? Wasn't there sort of a women's b-ball league or something? I did, yeah. I was playing, I was playing on municipal leagues kind of mm-hmm. across the city, wherever I could find them mm-hmm. for years there. It was really fun. It, mm-hmm. was, it was great. In college... Um, I only played that first year and I I got to a point where I was afraid I was going to lose my love for the game. I was Mm -hmm. getting burnt out on it. So when I returned to it via municipal leagues, it was a real, it was really refreshing and it was nice to have that, that love for the sport intact. What's some of the things you like most about basketball? As cheesy as as it is, I like the, I like the team dynamic. I like, I'm, I'm not one of those real flashy players. I always, Mm -hmm. my focus most of the time was on making assists, you know? Yes. So, Mm -hmm. and so I just love playing hard and playing with a team. And when it flowed, it really flowed. And it was a great outlet, a good emotional outlet. Yeah. (laughs) I also thought you were a really good team player when you were on the um, improv club, when you were on the high school comedy club. And for me, being a team player is the thing that I most got out of sports. Mm-hmm. When I went, um, when I became a theater person, being a team person was like a big asset. Did you feel the same like when you've then moved on, and we'll talk more about this, to become an artist in Los Angeles with different teams and stuff? Absolutely. And it's really funny because a lot of, you'll find a lot of artists weren't necessarily athletes, but my boss at BCBG, where I stayed for about seven years and really kind of hit the peak of my career, she was a college baseball player or softball player. And we would really connect on certain fundamental assumptions or attitudes kind of to the work and to the team. And we spoke a similar language because we both had that attitude of like, 
We're going to play, you know, we're going to push down to the last second. We're going to bolster each other. We're going to all work together. And it was really helpful to kind of have that commonality. I think that's just great stuff. I really do. Now, um, when you went to Santa Cruz, uh, UC Santa Cruz, um, as I recall, you studied lots of stuff, but you ended up in fine arts. Tell us a little bit about your time at UCSC and how you ended up in fine arts and what kind of pushed you in that direction. You know, I entered UCSC with a list of about six different majors I was interested in. And I took classes in everything I could and didn't really have any regard for what level they were. I would just, if it sounded interesting, I'd just jump on in. And I got a lot out of doing that. And at the end of the day, I kind of narrowed my focus to I wanted to do fine art and mechanical engineering. Wow. But to do that double major, I also really wanted to do environmental studies. But to do the double major of the mechanical engineering and fine art, I would have had to be there for like seven years. Mm. So I said, okay, I'm going to be practical. I'm going with fine art. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Very practical. Uh Mm. You know, I just, I think it just, it challenged more sides of me. Mm-hmm. I found that it was it was the, the subject that really called me to task on a lot of levels, not just mm-hmm. intellectually. Were you doing painting? Were you doing sculpture? Were you doing all of the above? Did you just try everything? <clears throat> yes, mm-hmm. I, tried, I did mm-hmm. all of the above. My, mm-hmm. I think when I graduated, my focus was painting and sculpture, ultimately. But mm-hmm. yeah, the sculpture I was doing was in every medium I could get my hands on or it's just a lot of exploration. So were you doing clay and stone, um, all kinds of Mm -hmm. stuff with sculpture? Just, just curious of what, what are kind of the things most interesting to you then? Well, I love clay. I remember though, you see Santa Cruz was a bit conceptual, you know, they were really Mm -hmm. trying to move away from the way art used to be taught where it was very technical Mm -hmm. and they were trying to create conceptual artists. Mm -hmm. So when I worked in clay, it was pretty offensive to my sculpture teacher. (laughs) I mean, she wouldn't even critique my work because she hated the medium. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So that was a little hard for me. That was, I mean, that's the thing about art. I, that's the only discipline I can see. Every single teacher, every single teacher at the beginning of the class would say, this is hopeless. This is pointless. You're never going to make a living at this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And I would just be like, Mm, we'll see. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, so and then when I when I studied abroad, I did marble sculpting, which I really liked. Oh well, let's move on to that because I think that's a, a fascinating thing. You did was it your junior year abroad in Italy, yeah. and um, you went to Bologna mm-hmm. at University of California. They have and they have had and they continue to have. Uh, sort of sister universities in Europe. They have programs in Britain, Germany, France, and of course Italy, where you went. You went to Bologna. So tell us about your junior year abroad and your chance to do marble sculpture, etc. I mean, it really was the best year of my life, I have to say. It was absolutely incredible on every level. I went there First, I went the, the summer before to Siena to study Italian. I only had one year of Italian under my belt, so I went uh-huh. to an intensive language program in Siena, which was amazing in and of itself, and then moved to Bologna. And I got to Bologna, and they said, okay, now go find yourself a place to live. Oh, man. So, mm-hmm. so that, that just one challenge after another of trying to, you know, just sink or swim. Yeah. And... It, Bologna has the oldest Western university, and then they also have an art academy there. So in theory, I was enrolled. The agreement was with the university, so that's where I needed to be enrolled and go to classes. And there was the perk of being able to attend classes at the academy. Well, sitting in a huge lecture course with hundreds of people in a foreign language can get 
pretty mind-numbing and it's a little bit hard to follow along. So I ended up really shifting my focus to the academy classes where I was getting to be hands-on. And so that's where I was taking marble sculpting and oil painting. And, you know, they just said, here's a... Here's a block of marble. Mock, mock up what you want to sculpt in clay first, which mm-hmm. for me, wee! Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then they handed me a chisel and mallet, and I just would go whenever I wanted and just hammer away at this marble, trying to get to this image underneath. So, Did you meet yeah. a lot of uh, interesting people in, in both the art school and the uni, or what was, the, what was kind of living situation like? So I ended up living with six Italian students. Excellent. It was great. All Each of them had studied English for many years, and none of them spoke a lick of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> I'd stumble out of bed in the morning and have to just go right into speaking Italian, which, mm-hmm. you know, could be challenging, but it mm-hmm. was it was a good challenge. And, and my, my roommates were all really eccentric, great humans, mm-hmm. and... I didn't really make many friends through my classes at school. It was mm-hmm. more out in the community. Mm-hmm. I would spend quite a bit of time with the other exchange students from the States. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of that, too, when yeah. I was an exchange student. Uh-huh. But that didn't mean I wasn't engaged in the community. I mean, I was mm-hmm. still speaking Italian constantly yeah. and mm-hmm. spending a lot of time with my roommates and stuff. And actually, not far into it, I was out one night at a bar called Soda Pops. And, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I ordered a drink and I was pretty, feeling pretty sassy. And the owner turned to me and said, you want a job? Oh. So before I knew it, I was 20 years old and I was bartending in Italy because I thought that was the coolest thing I could be doing. That is way cool. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was tending bar. And that was, so that was, a, that was also a place where I was just talking to a ton of people and meeting all sorts of characters mm-hmm. and I I have uh, always thought the best way to get to know a culture is to live there and to work there. Mm-hmm. And it, when you work there, you get to know lots of people. You're speaking the language all the time. Presumably, you had the similar experience. Yeah. Then. So so you you stayed there for a year. You did all kinds of art. You worked in a bar. I guess nobody asked for your work permit. Was it no? Good. <laughs> good. I'm glad. I think it was. I think it must have been under the table. Yeah, good, yeah. Remember. So you came back then, and you had to do one more year at Santa Cruz? Well, first, mm-hmm. I went up to, for the summer, after after my year, I went up to um, the Tyrol region in Austria. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah, sure. worked in a castle for a oh, month or two. Wow. And then, um, it was a bed and breakfast, actually locally owned. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went back to Italy, and then finally made my beeline back to the States. Well, but I dragged yeah. my feet for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think to me that sounds to me like a transformative year for you. It was incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. you came back to Santa Cruz and finished up your fine arts degree. I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, was it at that point, sooner or later, that you and Mikhail got together? Yeah, actually, I came back from Italy, spent a few weeks here on the coast. Um, and started becoming friends with, with Mikhail, and mm-hmm. then went back to Santa Cruz, and every time I'd come back up to visit, we'd just spend time together as friends. And at some point, all of our friends and family started accusing us of being in love, and we were like, oh, you're ridiculous. No, mm-hmm. we're not. And so it was one of those things where one day we just kind of looked at each other and went, oh, God, they might be right. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think we would be really good together. Oh, jeez. Mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. we might need to find out what this is. So. Yeah. And it, it was—he's an artist too, right? Among oh, other things. Oh boy, is he? Yeah, he's—he's yeah. he's magical. He um, is kind of a roving artist. The inspiration strikes, and he'll learn a new medium, and then mm-hmm. it'll go through its course, and then 
he'll move on to the next. About a year ago, I had the good fortune to go into the general store, and on the wall were a series of things that were like on plaques, Mm -hmm. and they looked like steampunk weapons or little machines from a century ago. And I was blown out, and it turned out Mikhail had made all of them. Yep, those those are his ray guns. Ray guns. There you go. They're like uh, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century I've ray seen guns. Them. I've yeah. been in there and seen them. Actually, yeah. they're incredible. And, yeah. I mean, the kicker is we moved when we moved from Los Angeles to Santa Cruz. We it was the first time we ever used a moving service, and the boxes got there, and we started opening them, and everything was broken. I swear they. They must have just been kicking those boxes back and forth the whole time we were waiting for them. And so what he started doing is taking all these little broken pieces and tinkering with them in the night in the garage. Mm -hmm. And he made those ray guns. And Mm -hmm. then not long after, he was invited to put them up in in a space in Petaluma, where we were living at the time. And then that led to being part of an exhibition at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Mm Really? Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. So he got to... Have pictures of his names up on his name up on a marquee mm. with his ray guns, and it was mm. yeah, it was really cool. So the ones that the the pieces that he put on the wall at the store were the last few that because he he used to have a lot. Getting back, so you okay. and Mikhail had met, and you were uh, now you're finished with UCSC, the fine arts degree, and you decided at this point to head down to LA and uh, go to graphics art school. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, because. That ends up at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. Yes. That's right. So it's kind of funny. I spent the last probably six months of my time in Santa Cruz as I was finishing up my, my degree working one-on-one with a professor, kind of being preened to go after a graduate degree um, on the East Coast. Oh. He'd connected to something in a big paper I'd written for him, and he really wanted to see me kind of move forward with a professor that he knew on the East Coast who he thought I'd really do well studying under. Anyway, so I was reading all this philosophy and I was really entrenched in this whole idea. And at a certain point, right as I was pulling to a close at Santa Cruz, it struck me that I could go on and be a career student, but that would get me no closer to being able to support myself. And that really freaked me out. I needed to know that I could leverage my skills towards a career. So I kind of put that dream on hold and decided to do something a bit more practical and that's when I went to the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising because I figured that would be a place, there's a technical school that could help me leverage my skills into a career. Mm-hmm. So that's what spawned it. Of course, I went into it once again going, well, there's like six different things I could like to do. So just like with Santa Cruz. So mm-hmm. what I did was a professional designation <clears throat> degree in visual communications, which is just as broad as it sounds. I studied interior design, fashion design, merchandising, kind of a little mm-hmm. bit of everything. What What of those areas were you find that you were most interested in then? You know, as far as the classes went, I don't really remember being particularly inspired by any of them, I'll be honest. What inspired me was I started doing internships all over the place uh, through the, the Fashion Institute. I was doing, you know, a couple internships and a job all simultaneously while going to school trying to find my footing. And in doing that, I found my little points of excitement. So I was working at a custom bed and bedding showroom. In mm-hmm. Hollywood, where okay. you know you drop fifteen hundred dollars for a flat sheet, fitted sheet, and pillowcases, right? Uh-huh. And I started geeking out on the fabrics. I started really, really enjoying the patterns and the textures, and that led me to pause at a booth at a career fair, like a job fair on the school grounds. I saw, I saw a booth that had some fabric swatches on it, and I stopped to kind of feel them and look at them and. 
and talked to them for a second and I ended up leaving a resume. And I left another resume at another booth for BCBG. Leaving those resumes ended up months and years later leading to my career. So but. they wait, you would wait like so many months or years and then they would call you back? Yeah. Something? So then I continued to explore and, you know, I, there's, I was doing all sorts of neat things down there. And out of the blue, one day I get a call saying, hey, I have your resume. Would you be interested in, in coming in and archiving our art? Well, okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. So what it ended up being was a fabric converter. What they do is they have artwork portfolios that they bring to clothing manufacturers and they sell them on certain prints, and then they coordinate the printing of them. They'll recolor them, rework them, and then coordinate the printing of them, either at that time domestically or Asia. Now it's all done in Asia. So I, I started working for these folks, doing their archives, and then just archiving this art and getting their, their print groups together and stuff. And one day their their in-house artist quits, and the owner turns to me and says, Jess, do you know how to use a computer? Sure! Mm-hmm. Do you know how to use Photoshop? Sure! Very elementary skills in Photoshop at that time. She's like, okay, you're our new in-house artist. And I just jumped right in with two feet and I just figured it out on the go. And I worked late nights and just hustled. And before I knew it, I was cranking out production-ready artwork for all these different manufacturers across the swimwear industry. Wow. And then I was going to the different designers and working directly with them and getting the direction and then also relaying projects, farming out projects to other free, to freelance artists mm-hmm. for, you know, stuff that I couldn't totally handle in the house because there was too much. So it was a really neat way just to jump right into textile design and it was completely accidental. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you're basically le- learning the business aspects of that business mm-hmm. because if you're taking on the project and you're farming out the assignments, you're basically learning how to run projects. Yeah. So- basically producing. Yeah, it was amazing. I got to wear so many different hats and get, you're right, get the different perspectives that usually you get really stuck in one perspective, but Mm -hmm. yeah. And how old were you then? 23. Oh, wow. 24. That's cool. (laughs) It's great you took, you were able to take on that responsibility and get right at it. You know, as a Photoshop user who loves Photoshop but has limited skills, I wondered, what do you think was the time frame of you feeling like you were confident with Photoshop? I mean, it it was a couple years, I'd say. Mm -hmm. But it's just, I mean, I was self-taught and it was just trial and error. Mm -hmm. And I just figured it out as I went. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's what's great about those programs is there's so many different ways to do everything Mm -hmm. that you are always continuing to learn new techniques. Yeah. I mean, there's still so much for me to learn and I've been neck deep in it for 15 years or something. Yeah. 16. And you, with, um, um, at this point, do you use Photoshop pretty much every day or every time you're on assignment, doing an assignment? Most, yeah. That's the go-to thing? I'm most comfortable in Photoshop, yeah. Do you do Illustrator? What are some of the big programs that you, mostly Photoshop? Mostly Photoshop, a little bit of Illustrator, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd say my specialty is is creating Frankensteins. (laughs) Well, what does that mean? (laughs) Taking different images and pulling them apart and creating something new with them uh-huh. essentially is that a, is that a fashion word is that like nah, a, that's no that's a Jessica, Jessica word they call them Frankensteins <laughs> like like when you pull different designs and squish them yeah because with textile design most of the time what you're doing is you're trying to emulate a really specific hand or really specific artistic look uh-huh. That's not necessarily your own personal hand. You're emulating somebody else's. So you use whatever tools you have mm-hmm. to create that. And with the internet, it's really useful because you can pull imagery and dissect it and pull elements out of the imagery and kind of change it so it's no longer recognizable 
and throw it into this other new creation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it helps a lot. When I entered the industry, it was just transitioning to be digital. Textile design has kind of lagged behind a lot of other industries. And what it had been was a bunch of really skilled fine artists who would paint very precisely these paintings, these, these repeats, these prints. And the colors would have to be perfect and the shapes would have to be perfect and then it would have to repeat perfectly. And it was totally unforgivable and it was a level of skill that was just incredible. Well, that was going out the window and I was watching these people either change and start working on computers or become obsolete in the industry in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Not completely. There are other ways to then transition that. But make my Frankensteins. Yes, Frankensteins. That was it. It was the Frankensteins. Almost like collages, it seems. Totally. Oh, yeah. Like the last two days, I've been working on this print that's really a hoot. It's for this new small line that I absolutely love. And they wanted a, a conversational print, which is... Um, anyway, and so I'm, I'm, I've been creating this kind of natural history illustration looking print with lemurs climbing around on vines. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. take sure. all natural history. So primordial primates and, or something. Yeah. So that's that's today's Frankenstein, and it's really yeah. fun. I can't help but ask, um, do your kids like to see the kind of stuff you do? They do. My son is really cute. Every once in a while, he'll come sit down on my computer and draw something and ask me mm-hmm. to make it into a print. So we, um, I still have yet to burn a screen and really like start printing it on fabric for him, but we keep getting to the stage of printing it on paper. So mm-hmm. I'll get it into repeat for him, and mm-hmm. he gets to geek out. So mm-hmm. he's really, I see a bright future there for him. He's about seven now? Six and a half, yeah. Six and a half, right, good. Yeah. And, uh, and Maggie's like two and a half or something? She just turned two in March. Oh, yeah. she just turned two. Yeah. So she probably smashes her hand on the keyboard or something like that at this point. Or? She smashes her Play-Doh on my Wacom tablet, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could give us sort of an overall... Um, mini bio of the places you worked until you ended up at uh, BCBG. And uh, you even worked for, um, I think it's Armani too, right? Yeah. That Tell was... us a little bit about the sort of the ba- the back of their baseball card with all the different teams <laughs> you played for and stuff. Well, that was, so that was a pretty cool era there because I had an internship at the VIP Giorgio Armani showroom on Rodeo Drive. Wow. And uh, among other things, while I was also working at the aforementioned um, custom bedding store and also doing work already at Marimar, which is the fabric place I was just speaking to. So Giorgio Armani, I was helping A-listers get dressed for events. Mm -hmm. I was helping um, stylists pull clothes for their A-lister clients for anything from an event to a commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that mean, what that would look like, for instance, Daryl Hannah came in, she needed a dress for, oh, some award ceremony. Award season is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. So I got to walk her through the showroom and show mm-hmm. her the dress options that she had. And, you know, there she is asking me, should I wear, well, okay, I've got to narrow it down to these two dresses. Which one is better on me? Which one should I wear? And I'm wow. sitting there looking at Daryl Hannah and in the back of my mind going, <laughs> I'm from Mendocino. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know like, the closest yeah. mall was two hours away. You know? uh, like right. fashion wasn't some 
yeah. that was really a part of my growing up. So, so I got a real kick out of that, like secret. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I, uh-huh. I, you're asking here's me this, here's this country yokel kid who, <laughs> yeah. who was suddenly advising A-listers on what to wear. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I got a real mm-hmm. kick out of that. Um, and the folks there actually were really kind, and it was a really neat experience. And that actually ended up leading to work as an assistant for one of the big stylists who had some consistent clients. And I would run around to showrooms pulling clothes for her. I would go down to the California Mart and haggle with people trying to borrow samples of jewelry and stuff. Anything they needed, I would do it. And then I would help her on set when, you know, whether it was a a Bacardi commercial that we were doing Mm -hmm. the clothing for, Mm -hmm. or it was getting Christina Ricci ready for an award show Mm -hmm. or trying to find vegan shoes for Alicia Silverstone. (laughs) I mean, I'll tell Uh you, that woman really stuck to her belief system. She did. She was vegan 100%. So Mm -hmm. we could not put a stitch on her body that was an animal product. And that is really challenging. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. uh (laughs) Because that means no wool. Yeah. Uh Well, actually, she might have done wool. I mean, it was L.A. and it was hot, so sure. it didn't really come into it. That's much. right. But, sure. yeah. mm-hmm. but it did mean no leather. It did mm-hmm. mean no leather. And, you know, I really found that the celebrities themselves were that we worked with were really kind. They were really easy to be around and nice. Mm-hmm. And it was more the people around them that were kind of hard to deal with. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> sure. But, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, so that was a really interesting era. Mm-hmm. And then you, at the same time, you were... Um, you eventually got into then where you wanted to be, which was making designs yourself, right? Right. And I didn't know that's where I wanted to be okay. at the time. Uh-huh. I was really just exploring. So while I was doing the celebrity fashion styling stuff, I was also teaching myself Photoshop and I was mm-hmm. putting in hours as the in-house artist at Miramar. So I was doing all these things kind of concurrently. And then it just slowly became clear which work was more fulfilling and, and sustainable, and that wasn't the that wasn't the fashion. Where, where did you hit stride and find that out? Like, was that at BCBG? Yeah, I mean, or was that at? Or, I mean, I see other places I, in here. Yeah. Marimar the fir- is the first place that I was. It was a swimwear converter where I started just doing the art. They had called me out of the blue, and that's where I really hit my stride. I, you know, they gave me the chance to be the in-house artist, and I ran with it. And before I knew it, it was. I mean, it was on a career path I was really just doing it and that I'd been there for three years and I'd kind of hit a ceiling you know it was a small company and there wasn't really much more growth from where I was and Mm -hmm. I'd had a really quick trajectory Mm -hmm. I was really lucky so Mm -hmm. out of the blue I got a call from BCBG three years into Miramar as I was hitting the ceiling they had an old resume of mine from the job fair the same one I had dropped one off my goodness from Miramar And I was like, well, here, let me, let me give you, send you an updated resume and maybe you'll have something appropriate to my experience now. And lo and behold, they did. And I was hired. And that, now that company is known for being a pressure cooker. Uh It's average, the average employee lasted one year, or I should say the average time working there was one year. Yeah. So take all the employees and you get to, you know, an average of the one year point. So... I lasted seven, which is unheard of. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's you know it was it was nothing short of a pressure cooker. It was just hustling, and I was really lucky because I I had a great boss who I really had a rapport with, and I grew quickly and ended up managing my own team and working directly with the owner of the company, who not everybody could work with. It was a really challenging and unique position to be in. 
you know, before I knew it, as a textile designer, I was putting three different lines down the runway every season. Wow. Uh And so the level of creative spark, you know, that's that's really creatively fulfilling to see your prints on the runway. That's kind of... I bet, yeah. Kind of epic. So, mm-hmm. so I really got, I really got that fix and it, and it kept me there and it kept me doing it. And, um, you know, I'd be, I'd be there till 11 PM waiting for my meetings with Lubov and then she'd go home without a word, you know, or I'd be working till 3 AM to finish a project for the wow. next morning. Or so, you know, if I left at 7 PM, it was a real big deal. It felt like I was skipping class or something. Yeah. Most nights I was there really late. Yeah. I just, this is a, a kind of a, I can't help but ask the question. You work till 11 p.m. or you work till 3 a.m. How much do you have left in the gas tank? As as an artist and as a creative person, or are you doing business stuff? I'm just curious. No, that was just all of it. That was mm-hmm. all I had. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, luckily Mikhail was really patient with me. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and before I started working at BCBG, you know, Mikhail and I were, we played kickball. We had part of like, a, we were part of a kickball team and I do a lot of bike riding and have a real social life. And once I started working at BCBG, that all fell away. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a social life anymore. And Mikhail was really patient with me. Mm-hmm. You know? He was working tending bar and stuff at the he time, was. right? Uh-huh. He was. So he'd be out late a lot too, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we would, you know, I would get home from work hopefully before he went, but he'd go to work at 10. So mm-hmm. sometimes we'd just be, you know. Ships passing in the mm-hmm. night, uh-huh. or patterns passing or in patterns the Frankenstein passing. development. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fascinating. And then, so you guys, you did sportswear, swimwear, dresses, mm-hmm. and you mentioned runway. And it's funny for a, a couple of schlubs like Ken and I here. I mean, runway sounds pretty fancy, doesn't it? Don't you I think? think of planes. I, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, when you met people in the and like who did you meet lots of models and stuff like that and just you know? Yeah, I mean models would be coming through a lot, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really interface with them that much. Mm-hmm, sure, you're in the creative right. end, so that's good. yeah. I'm just curious. I just, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and there, you know, and there were there were often celebrities coming through, and you know, it was Los Angeles, so it, mm-hmm. there was. A level of of buzz, kind of excitement. Everybody yeah. is very excited to be in the fashion industry, and yeah, sure. It's, and to be a designer is very cutthroat. I mean, it is it is thankless and it is cutthroat. And I never wanted to be an actual fashion designer. I always loved being a textile designer because it's so creative. But it was just outside of that bubble, and the people who were in textile design tended to be more kind of quirky and creative and weird, with just different aspirations. So. I like yeah. that. At a certain point, you've been down there, what now, by this time, maybe 10, 12 years or so? We were there 10 years total. Yeah. 10 years. So at a certain point, I know you're both NorCal people, you're both Mendocino Coast people. At a certain point, it seemed to me, and this is, I heard through the grapevine, that you guys were kind of intent on getting back up north. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that transition and what what sort of drove you to want to come back up here? Well, you know, we moved down there saying, okay, we can make it one year. Let's make mm-hmm. it down here. One year. We can do it. And we stayed for 10. Um, around eight years in, Mikhail was like, Jess, we've got to go. We've got to go. We can't. I can't keep doing this. And I was like, okay, just give me a little bit more time. And he was like, okay, I'll give you to the 10-year mark. And then I'm going without you. So it was on. and uh we at the nine year somewhere in there i got pregnant with my son and of course the culture where i was working was such that it was like a betrayal to my bosses that you were pregs that i was pregnant Mm -hmm. (laughs) did you plan this did 
you know this is coming when you got your promotion? You know, Mm -hmm. it's a little hard because it was a place where you really had to put work ahead of everything personal. And I knew once I had a kid, I wouldn't be able to do that. So I had my son, and then um, and then and his name is Casper. And his name is Casper. And I and then I, I went back to work at three months. And let them know know that I was going to be leaving, you know. And so I gave them essentially six more months. So they got six months notice before I left. And then we moved to Petaluma. And that was, you know, I figured in Petaluma I could still commute to the city. I could still continue to find work. Mm -hmm. But um, we'd be be in Northern California finally. Yeah. And then from Petaluma you could um, telecommute kind of thing. And uh, tell us about that. How did that work? I drove to San Francisco every day of the week. To, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> so much for telecommuting, huh? Yeah. yeah. So I, uh-huh. the first job I got, I, we moved there without work, without having any jobs. We just wow. we had some savings, and we were just going to do it. We got there, and within a couple weeks, I landed a job at Gap Inc. for their Banana Republic factory store brand. And so I started, yeah, I would drive down to Larkspur and take a ferry across the bay and mm-hmm. work right there on the... Um, at Two Folsom, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful office when I first got there. I was so excited. Everybody was so nice, and it was so beautiful. And it was this whole different culture I'd never experienced. But it ended up not being a really poor fit for me creatively. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so I was so happy to be in Northern California, and it was just like we were speaking different languages at Gap. I just my bosses were super kind and great, but mm-hmm. we were just speaking gibberish to each other, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, and. Eventually, I got a freelance opportunity with a company in Concord and started exploring that a little bit. Meanwhile, there was one one work opportunity in Petaluma. There was one company, Athleta, that mm-hmm. was also under gapping, and I went after a position there, and I didn't get it. And that just, it just floored me. And at, around that same time, we found out that the Golden West Saloon, not only was it for sale, but that the hospitality center was looking at purchasing it and turning it into a um, residence house or yes, something. Uh-huh. Yeah, we should say just point out the Golden West Saloon is in Fort Bragg, California, nearby where Jessica grew up in Mendocino, and it's a giant big bar with uh, residential rooms and sort of a dormitory almost next to it. And even there's some artists who work in rooms, right, or studios. There have, or they been, have, in the been, past, have yeah. been. Anyway, so this big place became available. So it became available. It had had always been the pipe dream. Mikhail Mm -hmm. and I thought when we were old codgers, we'd hopefully get the Golden West and like come back to the coast. Well, it was up for sale now. It was before we ever thought it, you know, it would come to this question. We heard, we were like, oh, shucks, we don't have any money. Can't make that happen. I didn't get the dream job I wanted. And then we, at the same time that we heard that they were looking at dismantling the bar and turning the building into kind of a homeless services space. And we said, oh my God, we've got to at least try. We've got to at least try to do something because we have nothing to lose. Literally nothing to lose here. And part of this was my sister-in-law had told us she knew somebody who was looking to invest money in a project. Mm-hmm. And that there were people who would invest in something like this. So we embarked on this journey of putting one foot in front of the other, trying to buy the Golden West with partners. Meanwhile, I gave my notice at Gap and I'm I'm doing work for this place in Concord, just doing freelance for them. And then we got all the way to, they accepted an offer we made. We had this huge financing packet. We were going after it hard and we couldn't get traditional financing. And then we thought we had private financing lined up and they drove by and saw the horrible paint job and 30 years of neglect and they backed out. 
And we were like, sorry, we can't do this without owner financing. So it was 11th hour. We thought it wasn't going to happen. And I accepted a full-time position at this place in Concord. And then I get a call one day and they changed tack and they decided to give us owner financing. So game on. And uh, here we are moving to Fort Bragg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you ended up, you just completely shined on the job in Concord then at that point. I said, I'm so sorry. I thought this was dead in the water. Mm-hmm. It turns out this is happening. I've got to do it. And they said, okay, you can go back to freelance. I worked freelance for them for about four months. And they said, screw it. Let's put you back to full time. Oh. So then I had the amazing opportunity to be a full-time textile designer for this manufacturer for the next three years. Telecommuting. Telecommuting, working from home four days a week and driving down to Concord one day a week. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was Uh fantastic. It really was great. And how long did that continue then? Uh, Until last April. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also had the amazing, the privilege of working freelance for Gap, for the old team I was working for, for quite a while, too. So that, that helped get ends to meet, too. So it was I was really lucky when I moved up here. I had the full-time gig. I had a little bit of freelance on the side. Mm-hmm. And I ha- and that really gave us some stability so that we could be running, you know, managing these, bu- these businesses without putting pressure on them. So I was able to support my family and get the businesses going. Great. So you're continuing in the fashion industry, and now you're taking on the Golden West. And yeah. then what are, and Mikhail is there too, so he's going to take over the bar and run that. What were some of the big challenges of taking, it's a big building in yeah. Fort Bright, California. What are some of the challenges of taking that on? And for example, now I look at it now, there's a big, giant, beautiful mural of Fort Bragg on the side of the building. The building itself has been painted. It's been the process of here and there being refurbished. What are some of the things you guys just jumped in on then? Well, we we both had always loved the building so much. We both really love having grown up here. Mm-hmm. And even when we lived away, we really romanticized home. Mm-hmm. And gold, the Golden West was kind of a central figure in that romanticization. Romantic view. View. <laughs> Romantic view. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we approached it right out the gates. We kind of approached it with this attitude that we wanted to try to maintain its soul, kind of keep its soul intact, but preserve it and kind of renew it in a lot of ways. So we started with the bar and we, you know, we just, we cleaned the heck out of it with TSP. I mean, everything was just yellow. So it was just TSP. Smoke. Everywhere from Mm -hmm. the smoke, years Mm -hmm. and years of Mm -hmm. smoke. So a lot of it was just washing, cleaning, Switching up, putting in new equipment. We had to replace some of the, put in some new subfloors in a couple spots, update some some plumbing. But we really worked hard to kind of keep the old feeling of the place intact. And then from there, the next goal was to paint the building. Because before we did any improvements on the in, on the rooms upstairs, we needed to start sealing up. Over the years, what they did basically is as, a, as the roof leaked, they would just shut the door on the room it was leaking into and walk away. Oh, <laughs> so so you know i was i was down there with respirators and coveralls a lot yeah cleaning out these rooms that had been decommissioned for decades mind you this is a fashion designer who is putting on coveralls and a respirator <laughs> to work so this is a woman of the people yes <laughs> um so that was fun and the things i pull out of these rooms it was like you know little time capsules under the different layers of linoleum and wallpaper and it's an old burlap on the walls with can see the paper from the early you know from 1920 and then the 50s wow. on top and the 70s wow. you know so really cool stuff 
And so, yeah, we ended up finally getting the building painted. We ended up having to do some crowdfunding to get all the way through the paint job. People were really, our community was really generous and and stepped up to help do that. And then we got the capital together to replace the roof, which was a really big deal for us. And we've just been working our way through from like tearing out the shag carpet in the hallways and repainting to each time a room comes open, going in and putting up new sheetrock and repairing things and just trying to update it one bit at a time. And it's all, it's really hard to be patient sometimes because there's a lot I want to do, but there just isn't the capital. Sure, (laughs) sure. So this is, at this point, um, you're um, 39, I think. Mm -hmm. It's okay if I say that. And so you see this as you and Mikhail will work on this on and off for the multiple years ahead. And who knows where you'll be in so many years, but at least for the time being, this is a project. Absolutely. Whatever we're doing, we both throw ourselves into it pretty Mm -hmm. intensely. And we realized at a certain point that we were giving our all to these different jobs where we weren't actually building anything for ourselves yeah. in the long term. Mm-hmm. So even though we're, we have all these businesses happening and they they don't support our family, but mm-hmm. as long as we're in this real mind frame of trying to make sure they're healthy businesses and build them up so that someday we have, you know, we're building equity and maybe someday they'll be able to support our family or someday at least that's something that we can pass to our children. And in the meantime, we feel we've also had a real focus on wanting to be additive to the community. Yeah. That leads me to my next thing. I think that one of the things that's been most impressive uh, for me in the last years, I moved here in the late 70s and it was, you know, kind of the part of the hippie back to the land movement. And I was part of that. And, um, over time, the community has aged, and so there's a lot of old people in the community now. Mm-hmm. What's been great to see is a number of people like yourself and Mikhail, etc., who have come back to the community and are seeming to want to invest in it. This is a little rural area, in some ways in the middle of nowhere. We're on the north coast of California. And to have people like you guys come back and invest in businesses is a big deal. But you've also invested in um, local politics. Last year, you ran for the city council, and you won. And in January, um, you began serving. Is it January you began serving, or December? December. December, you began serving on the Fort Bragg City Council. And I just wondered, you know, how did you get interested and decide to throw your hat in the ring? And uh, what are some of your interests in, in changing things at this point? You know, it, when it was first suggested to me, I just said, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> the second time it was suggested, I said, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. I was already way overextended. There was no way, you know, no. Mm. And then I sat with it and I realized I am all in on this town. And the decisions that are made in this next period here about the mill site and our infrastructure are going to affect the trajectory of our town dramatically. I really think it's going to affect us for a couple decades. And I and I realized that unless I threw my hat in the ring and tried to be of use, I couldn't bitch about it in 10 years when I don't like how things turn out, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm, yeah. So it really was just a kind of a sense of, of accountability and investment and just wanting to be of service to the community. And I, I've never been interested in politics. I couldn't have envisioned doing this, but it really made sense at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is the is the larger political atmosphere right now. You know, it's a way to confront some feelings of perhaps concern and desperation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to engage on a local level. 
So, so as far as what I hoped to do or what I wanted to change, it wasn't so much about like coming in and changing X, Y, and Z. It was, it's more about, I really like putting the whole picture together. And I think one of the problems with government is people often look at issues in silos and Mm -hmm. that can be really inefficient and really ineffective. And so what I felt like I had to bring to the table was to help kind of pull things out of the silos and start making connections. So that's kind of my focus. And I've really, it's been really, really neat. It's been so much more interesting and engaging and enjoyable than I had possibly imagined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so really I would love to see our community be more and more self-sufficient. I'd love us, love to see us have energy production here. I'd like to see us be in a position where you know, if we do get cut off, if things do go south yeah. or something happens, you know, like we'd really be able to be a hub for the coast and take care of ourselves and our neighbors. And I think that we have a community of really independent people, you know, no matter what your political leanings are or your life perspective, the commonality everybody seems to have is a really fierce independence. And I think that could be united around an idea of self-sufficiency. So, That's great, great. Yeah. I understand one of the, I've heard, one of the things you're interested in is housing and the yeah. problems that we have here. We have a rather significant homeless population here on the north coast of California. And um, we also have uh, housing that's not very affordable. So could you just maybe talk a little bit about some of the things that you're working on in that regard? Yeah, it's interesting because this is a problem that the entire state has. It's not just Fort Bragg, Mm. but it's exacerbated, I think, also by the fact that we are so kind of cut off and rural. I am working, well, there, there are a lot of different angles to approach this from. I guess the one nearest and dearest to me is the subcommittee for the housing action team that I'm part of which is focusing on community land trusts. Oh, yeah. So I think this is a really key time to be looking at different kind of co-op models and ways to put ownership and power in the hands of the community. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that looks like is, so community land trusts are different than traditional land trusts in that they are holding property for use by the community for housing, commercial, recreation, not just for preserving the land. And what they do is they hold the, the property off the market so that as an area is gentrified and, and costs go up, this property is still accessible to your community. So people aren't getting priced out of their home, essentially. homes. Mm-hmm. So I'm working with a really great group of people to start trying to find some traction, kind of find where we start with creating a community land trust, which is a slow process. But once you have an entity like that, you can hold property for, as I said, any of these these uses. And we have so much need for commercial as well as residential, as far as you know, incubators or people need opportunity and help. We have so many working poor in our town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I see this as a really, I see a community land trust as a really beautiful tool that could be leveraged to keep some security and power within the community and that would be a non-governmental entity actually it's very exciting because we just had our our goal setting retreat for the city council and one of the top priorities that we ended up arriving at was to um either be a be a good partner to a community land trust to the formation of a community land trust um and or to explore other options such as forming like joint powers housing authority with some of the other cities in our county Mm -hmm. trying to find some different tools to improve um, on the housing offering. Great. Yeah. But I mean, already there's a lot of work that's being, that's being done on all fronts. Yeah. So at this point, 
uh, you've got, as you uh, teased you at the beginning, you're working 40 hours a day on these variety <laughs> of things. You've got, uh, you know, your city councilwoman, you're involved with the land trust on the housing issue. You're still freelancing. Mm-hmm. You've got a six-and-a-half-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl, and they're taking up a lot of time. Um, you and Mikhail are running the general store and the bar. Uh, sounds like a pretty busy life to me, but it also sounds like something that's great for us. And in that sense, I think it's uh, it's a wonderful thing that um, that we have people like you who are working artists who are making a difference in their communities and stuff. So I just want to tell you that. So oh, it's very you. nice. Yeah. yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit about your kids. <laughs> All right. Well, Magnolia and Casper are hilarious. They, you know, I had my son and I thought, well, he's going to be the high energy wild one. You know, my, my second child will definitely be the mellow kid. Mm-hmm. And while she was, Still in utero, anytime he'd lean against me, she'd ram right back into him. So (laughs) she gives him a run for his money. Uh They're just both really bright, strong characters that are, they are a hoot, but they can wear out an army. I mean, (laughs) they are really great people. I'm a lucky mom. And her sense of humor is really slapstick. Mm-hmm. It's so funny how you can tell a person's sense of humor just from mm-hmm. day one. My son, my both of them have really keen senses of humor, but my son's is a little bit more kind of sly and about wordplay and stuff. Mm-hmm. And her, like, she's all about physical comedy. Mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. somebody gets hurt, and she's just guffawing. Mm-hmm. Like, no, stop it! Stop it! <laughs> but it's really cute. <laughs> anyway, you come from a great family. You have a great family, and it's wonderful to have a chance to talk to you. And uh, we're lucky. Thank you very much for being on Snap Sessions. Thanks well, a lot, thank Jessica. thank you for having me. Cheers, man. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks to our artist of the show, Jessica Morcel Hay. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.